Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to a special uh, bonus episode of Pod Save the UK. Now, regular listeners will know that we've been following the proceedings of the COVID inquiry closely. Uh, as we were recording this week's main episode, Boris Johnson was just beginning his two days of evidence. Uh, uh, given that he was a prime minister during the entirety of the pandemic, these were arguably the most important sessions of the inquiry so far. So we wanted to jump back on for this bonus episode just to go over some of the key points of what was said. Of course, the news cycle moves quickly and the latest shenanigans over the government's Rwanda plan have pushed the Johnson testimony off the front pages. But we really want to honour the experiences of those who suffered the loss of loved ones and who have been patiently waiting for this moment to see Boris Johnson held to account for his words and actions. To that end, we've invited a very special guest to join us. Her name is Susie Crozier-Flintham, and she was actually at the inquiry this week. Um, Susie actually lost her dad, Howard, to COVID in March 2020, uh, and we're deeply honoured uh, that she's decided to join us today. Um, welcome, Susie. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you so much for having me, and, and, and thank you for... Um, I don't think I've ever been honoured before. <laughs> <laughs> Well, listen, you spent the last two days listening to Boris Johnson speak and then you had to get a train very late yesterday back to Sunderland. So you've had a quite stressful 48 hours. So we really appreciate you taking the time. And listen, Susie, the honour really is as I think, you know, you speak on behalf of a lot of people who are really impacted by this. So I suppose the first thing to ask is, please tell us about your, your father, Howard. OK, where do I start with Dad? Um... So, like me, he was a teacher. He taught in the same school for his entire career, which meant that he taught generations of the same family. So when we would go into Gateshead to do our very glamorous Tesco shop, um, quite often he'd be stopped um, outside the supermarket by people and there'd be, like, three generations of the same family going, oh, my God, Mr Crozier, it's you. <laughs> um, and it was a bit like having a celebrity dad, although, obviously, as a teenager, that was quite embarrassing. Um but he was just kind of universally loved. He was such a generous human being. He would he would do anything for you. And, you know, when he was going around doing uh, people's gardens of, of the congregation at his church, he would, as much as he hated driving, he'd give people lifts, um, as much as he'd then sit and moan about it later. Um, he was <laughs> mischievous. He had a, a really kind of wicked sense of humour. Um, he was also really good at... <laughs> this is going to sound so bizarre... But he was really good at insulting people so subtly that they wouldn't realise until about two hours later that actually <laughs> being quite rude to them. Um, I wish I had that skill because I'm just rude. Um, um, and he was just generous. He was lovely. He was full of sunshine. Um, he was a committed Christian his entire life. He was a keen gardener. He had time for everybody. Um, just He was just lush. He was my dad. <laughs> How was the last two days? been because you've actually been in the room uh that johnson was giving testimony what was that like for you 
Uh, ooh, that's quite a complicated thing to unpick. I'm not naive enough to have thought it would have been plain sailing. I, mean, I knew it was it was going to be hard. I did. Yeah. But the fact that he walked in the room and refused to even look at us. I mean, let's be clear, right? He arrived at the venue at 7am, so he didn't have to walk past bereaved families. So he arrived three hours early just to avoid us. And when he walked in the room for all his mealy-mouthed apology, he didn't actually look at us once. Um, and, you know, and I'm kind of sat there sort of doing my best teacher stare, trying to bore my eyes into him so he would turn around and look at me so I could give him, you know, the proper kind of daggers. But no, he, he wasn't, he wasn't going to really acknowledge our presence. Everything was kind of very, very performative from him. And you sat there and you kind of, you, you're taken right back, actually, because what he's saying is what he was saying in 2020. So you're kind of triggered right back to the moment of your loss. So there's that, and then there's anger, and there's frustration, um, and there's just deep pain there. Um, you know, the only saving grace, really, is that we were at least together. We could support each other, um, because there was no help coming from the chair, either. Um, and it was... And then just listening to him obfuscate and lie and be the Boris Johnson show as if, you know, he's some sort of showbiz celebrity, is just galling, is utterly galling. Um, I don't know how many times I can say the word disrespectful, but I mean, that, is, I guess, is probably the most, the most appropriate word to describe how it was. He was just so disrespectful to us. Susie, I wanted to just ask you, because you talked about the the experience of having to relive your own loss as he's kind of recounting some of the same lines that he did back in 2020. And just for, sorry to make you uh, tell me about this again, but we spoke about your, your father, Howard, but we didn't really say that he, he caught COVID and yeah. that was horrible for you and you couldn't yeah. see him. And I just wondered if you wouldn't mind just sharing a few lines on that, just to really remind everyone of the sacrifices you were making while the man in front of you yesterday didn't. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think unless you kind of went through it, you don't necessarily know the realities of COVID itself. Like we were all locked down. We were all betrayed by Partygate and all of that. But for me, dad went into hospital on the 15th of March. So this was the, oh, please don't go to the pub speech. Dad went in with pneumonia, which was horrible in itself, because, of course, you, you think the worst immediately. And I was able to see him. Obviously, we hadn't locked down at that point. And I was able to see him. And in a couple of days, he was on the mend. He was laughing. He was singing. Um, his favourite thing to sing are some dreadful Gilbert and Sullivan tunes. <laughs> um and we were singing hymns, as I said, you know, he was a Christian his entire life. He was laughing, he was joking, and I thought, brilliant, he's going to be out. He'll be able to go back to his care home, it'll be fine. And then on the Sunday, I turned up, um, and he was in a, about the fourth ward by this point. He'd been moved so many times, it was ridiculous. And I turned up on the Sunday, and they said oh no, we've, we've closed the male part of this ward because we've admitted a COVID patient. So this is the 22nd of March. We still hadn't locked down. And I'm kind of stood there outside the ward kind of going, what? What do you mean you've admitted it? Why aren't they isolated? Why aren't they in a separate room? Why have you put them on a ward with really vulnerable human beings 
you've admitted I don't understand and I was sent and I'm sort of stood in the car park thinking how on earth do I drive what do I do is this the last time I'm ever gonna see him and I came home and I just said to my partner I said I really don't like this I really don't like this I'm not gonna see him again and then I had I, I literally like recruited as many students as possible so I was I could be busy and then I got a phone call on the Wednesday to say it's end of life you need to be here God um so I dropped everything I rushed to the hospital he was on yet another ward um I was told I had 10 minutes. I was given PPE, which I have since learned from watching um, an uned documentary called The Unequal Pandemic. I have since learned that that PPE was not fit for purpose and I wasn't protected and neither was he by my wearing it. Um, I read an article by Rachel Clark this morning where she was describing the sound on the COVID wards she was a doctor on. Um, and that's the thing that stays with me, is <clears throat> all my dad had was oxygen. And I don't know if you've ever heard someone fighting to breathe, but it is horrific because at any minute you think he's gonna suffocate. Um, and there were eight people on the ward with Dad, all of them on oxygen, all of them making this rattling sound. Um, his eyes were writhing. His chest was heaving. His cheeks were sunk. He looked grey. He looked so small. And he wasn't a physically big man, my dad, but he was massive to me. And there was this tiny little shrunken person who probably didn't even know who I was because he couldn't see my face. And he was fighting to breathe. Um, and all I did was held his hand. Um, and then I had to leave after 10 minutes. But they said to me, you know, I mean, this is mad. You can only be in for 10 minutes, but you can be in as many 10 minutes as you like. So I kind of came home and I sat there just to kind of process and then I turned around and I, I went back. Um, and I did that a few times and it was just the same each time and I'm just sat there holding his hand and in the end it was like, Dad, please don't, if you're suffering, please don't hold on for me. If you're suffering and you need to go, please just go because I can't. <laughs> I can't bear to see you like this. And um, that was on the Friday. And then I woke up on the Saturday morning to a voicemail to say that he died in the middle of the night. Um, completely by himself. You know, in a hospital that he, he hated hospitals. He didn't go to the doctors. He, he, you know, he was a really healthy man bar his kind of Parkinson's and, and dementia. But physically, you know, he was very, very fit. He used to walk for six miles every day, right up until the day we, we put him into a care home. Um, 
I don't know if he knew where he was. I don't know whether he was frightened. I'm really, really hate to think of him frightened. And he died by himself. Um, and that, and I don't think I've protested it even now, actually. I can't really imagine how you can process something like that. I mean, one of the things that, and thank you so much for, for telling us that story. Like it's, it's heartbreaking to hear and it's heartbreaking for so many others, I think, who went through that, to be reminded of that. Pod Save the UK is brought to you by Even the Royals on Wondery. When you take a closer look at what it means to be royalty, you'll see that it comes at the expense of everything else, like your freedom, your privacy, and sometimes even your head. On Wondery's new podcast, Even the Royals, they pull back the curtain on royal families, past and present, from all over the world. And you can listen for free wherever you get your podcasts. From one of the most infamous royals in history, Marie Antoinette, but everything you know about her is wrong. Or Catherine de' Medici. History branded her as a cold and power-obsessed manipulator, saying she was responsible for one of the most devastating massacres in French history. But she was an orphan who spent her life as a powerless hostage, and her determination to rise to power led her to some dark places and some desperate measures. Follow Even the Royals on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge Even the Royals ad-free right now on Wondery+. Pod Save America is brought to you by Helix Sleep. How long have you had your mattress? For most people, it's probably time for an upgrade, right? Well, Helix has exactly what you need. Everybody is unique and everyone sleeps differently. That's why Helix has several different mattress models to choose from, each designed for specific sleep positions and feel preferences. Take the Helix Sleep Quiz and find your perfect mattress in under two minutes. Helix has models with memory foam layers to provide optimal pressure relief if you sleep on your side, models with a more responsive foam to cradle your body for essential support in stomach and back sleeping positions, plus enhanced cooling features to keep you from overheating at night. And if your spine needs some extra TLC, they've got you. Every Helix mattress has a hybrid design combining individually wrapped steel coils in the base with premium foam layers on top. It's the perfect combination of comfort and support. Uh, I have a Helix mattress in our guest bedroom. Mm -hmm. Every single person who stays with us says, that bed is so comfortable. Where'd you get it? You know what I say? Where do you say? Helix. I love my Helix mattress. I have a Don Lux. Don Lux. It's very comfortable. So Lux. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash crooked and use code helixpartner20. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Again, that's helixsleep.com slash crooked, and use code HELIXPARTNER20. Do you think in some way this inquiry has helped with the processing. I mean, that's that's always meant to be one of the aims, right? Like it's a kind of national closure experience and inquiry. Has that actually been the case for you? No, um, it hasn't. And, and part of that is because um, Johnson was demonstrably lying for both days, but also because um, I'm actually not particularly impressed with how the inquiry is being run. So for example, yesterday, the chair didn't stop Johnson talking over council and council were obviously trying to get to the crux of the matter and he kept interrupting and cutting them off and she didn't stop that. And then at the end of the inquiry hearing yesterday, um, he basically made an impromptu party political broadcast, which she didn't stop. 
um, she told the, those of us in the public gallery who were reacting emotionally by gasping that we had to be quiet. So, you know, that just the way, even the way that the inquiry is being conducted is it, it's not set up for those of us who are bereaved at all. Um, and I don't even think it's set up to really be as interrogative as it could be. Um, I mean, our legal team are amazing. All the core participant legal teams are amazing. But, we, you know, and you could have predicted exactly what he was going to do. He was going to bluster. He was going to interrupt. He was going to obfuscate. He was going to answer a question he had in his head rather than the one that was asked. I mean, I knew he was going to do that. And if I knew that, so should the chair, but she did nothing to stop it. So actually, it's it's a really frustrating process so that there's no sense of closure from it at all. All it has done really is confirm what we already knew, um, that he was lying then, he's lying now. He made decisions too late, and when they came, quite often they were the wrong ones. And that was stuff we already knew, it's just been confirmed. So, no, I'm not sure... I'm not sure closure. I mean, I'll, I'll see what the recommendations coming out of the inquiry will be. And if we have any chance of making, like, genuine systemic change so nothing like that can happen again, then maybe then I'll get some closure. But I'm not particularly hopeful about that either. I, I hate to put you through this again, Susie, given the amount that you've heard the man speak. Um, but let's, uh, let's hear a section uh, of Johnson uh, at the proceedings. Can I just say how glad I am to be at this uh, inquiry and uh, how sorry I am for the, the pain and the loss and the suffering sit down. of please, the please stop. COVID stop. victims. Please sit down. Please sit down or I'm afraid you'll have to leave the hearing room. I'm sorry, if you don't sit down, I'm going to ask the ushers to get you to leave. Right, could ushers, please, could you ask them to leave? Could I say, by your leave, uh, that I understand the feelings of, the, of these victims and their families, and I am deeply sorry for the pain and the loss and the suffering of those victims and, and their families. That was uh, Baroness Hallett, um, who's uh, chairing the inquiry, um, reacting to some protesters standing up uh, in the room and confronting Johnson or attempting to confront Johnson directly. Susie, just talk to us a little bit about the groups of people that were together, because you, you referred a couple of times to us and how valued you found the community that you were with. What is that community? Um, so my community is the COVID-19 Bereaved Families for Justice group. The protesters who were thrown out were friends of the wall, so they've become custodians of the memorial wall that we, we started in London, but they are actually a slightly separate group. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we really are a community and we are so good at looking out for each other. Um, and we made a point of making sure that we were all supported. Um, yeah, and it was it makes a difference being with other bereaved people because we, we understand it in a way that that people who aren't bereaved just wouldn't. Um, I do think, however, the way that Baroness Hallett treated those protesters who stood up was appalling, because all they did was stand. You know, it's not like they were shouting obscenities or using the language that we've heard come out of Johnson's mouth recently. 
they just stood there in silent dignity holding pictures of their loved ones i mean i stayed sat with a picture of of my loved one but there were inquiry staff telling bereaved families with pictures of their loved ones to just can we please move the picture lower because it's distracting to whom to whom is it distracting but yes it is really important to be be there with fellow bereaved people because we we can support each other in a way that i don't think other people can at the first day of testimony, a lot of the reporting about it was uh, reflecting on Johnson striking a uh, more serious and uh, contemplative tone than we're used to with him. But as ever with Johnson, uh, his thin-skinned nature revealed itself in the second day uh, of questioning. And here is Johnson being, I think it's fair to say, audibly rattled by uh, Hugo Keith's line of questioning. You say at the bottom of the page, according to Sir Patrick Vallance, we're in a really tough spot, a complete shambles. I really don't want to do another national lockdown. He's told, you are told, that if you want to go down this route of letting go, you need to tell people. You need to tell them you're going to allow people to die. Was your position, Mr Johnson, that in light of your views secretly held about people dying having reached their time anyway, that you were obliged to reject the advice of your advisers that there'd be a circuit breaker? No. That there'd be no national lockdown until the no. last possible moment? No. And that you this would try a tier system? No. No. Uh, no. So the implication of, uh, the, or the implication that you're, you're trying to draw from those conversations is uh, completely wrong. And my position was that we had to save human life at all ages. And uh, that was the objective of the, of the strategy. He gets a bit tetchy. He comes across a bit arrogant. It's hard to read whether in those moments, like, you know, the interrogation is, is working, so to speak, or actually he just sort of reveals a, a side to him that is, is kind of chilling. And I, I wondered how you felt seeing those moments where it got a bit heated in the room. Um, for me, actually, I think it's a good thing to see him getting rattled because it means that he knows that his lies aren't working. Um, the interesting point for me was when Hugo Keith, and I did a little tally, he, he mentioned eight separate moments of evidence about the let the bodies pile high, let it rip kind of narrative. And he listed them and even Boris Johnson was silent for a minute. And that, to me, was really, really telling because you could see he was having to come up with a way, how do I spin this? And you could actually see the process. But he knew in that moment, because the rest of us, we were just waiting. Actually, um, yeah, get rattled because it proves that you are not the smooth operator you think you are. And actually, you're going to have to work to spin this now. And it just proves that he has actually got a lot to answer for, I think. One of the things I was really curious about was, you know, he talked at length about getting ill with COVID himself. And I wondered how that how that landed with, you know, the families of the bereaved. Not well. Um, I mean, as manipulation goes, that one is pretty shocking to say, you know, oh, woe is me, I had COVID. Yeah, it, I mean, it's a horrible, horrible, horrible illness. But you know what? You survived and you didn't allow your experience of COVID to create empathy or compassion. It didn't spur you into action. It didn't spur you into making 
the right decisions at the right time. And it did spur you into saying, let it rip. These people are going to die anyway. They've had a good innings. That's what it made you do. So don't be trying to pull a sympathy vote on me because I'm not having it. And we all saw through it. You know, it was one of the things that we, obviously we were disgusted by in the break when we were actually allowed to communicate with each other. You know, we were all absolutely furious at that. Because how dare you try and ma manipulate the bereaved? There's no moral there, is there? If you're gonna go, oh, let's play for sympathy from the bereaved. No, absolutely not. Yeah, Susie, we should also say that he tried to contextualize some of those remarks by saying that he spoke, and this is a direct quote, in an unpolished way. Um, and he said that he was speaking in an unpolished way because he wanted others to speak freely. Uh, uh, my personal feeling on that is that's an example of somebody attempting to explain and contextualize something that actually makes it worse. Uh, 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 that doesn't seem to me to be indicative of competent leadership. That's public school debating bullshit. Um, I wonder how you felt when you heard him say that. Trying to contextualise something which, for which there is no context. Yeah. I mean, the thing that struck me about his argument with that one was it was, and I'm smiling because this is, it's bringing out the teacher in me, is, oh, everybody was doing it. It wasn't just me. <laughs> You know, year nine boys say that to me. And, yeah. you know, he's a grown-ass man. And he's going, oh, well, everyone was doing it. And, you know, in your head, I'm sure your parents will have said this to you. Well, if everyone was jumping off a bridge. Yeah. You know, and it's like, it, as a defence, it is pretty ridiculous. Like, you're the leader and you are not leading. You are, if that is, if you genuinely stand by everyone was doing it, wasn't just me, then you're not leading, are you? You're following and you've got no business being prime minister. Um, but, you know, he's trying to contextualise and, def and defend the indefensible. You, you mentioned earlier that you, you'll wait until the recommendations come out before you make a final verdict about how useful this inquiry was or not. Are there particular recommendations that you are looking out for that, that, that really make a difference, whether it be, I don't know, compensation fund or an actual apology that you think is meant like what, what would it be that that would give you some sense of closure from this for me it's well i mean the, the biggest thing i think is funding the nhs properly um you know and actually ensuring we have the structures in this country to cope with a health disaster but also you know it's the fact that he actually admitted oh i didn't understand how serious it was yeah pardon um, who are you talking to then? Because from what I understand, the scientific advisors were telling you how serious it is. So the, another change I'd like to see is, is for people to really consider who it is we are putting into public office and whether or not we trust them with our lives. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've done a lot of thinking about this because he mentioned the system or the system wasn't good enough, the system. Like, you're in charge of the system. The person who can make changes to the system you're claiming to be a victim of is you. And actually, you know, I think about who these systems were invented for and by and the fact that the rest of us are trying to shoehorn ourselves into a system that was created by posh white men. And instead of trying to change the system to actually fit the people in it, we are trying to shoehorn ourselves into a system that's not fit for purpose. And actually, that is the big thing here. We need to look at what we have in place. And if it doesn't work, change it. 
Um, Susie, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we appreciate after all you've been through and after a sort of hectic 48 hours that I imagine has also been quite emotionally draining for you. We so appreciate you taking the time to join us. I really appreciate you giving me the time to tell Dad's story and, and get his personality out into the world again. So thank you for that. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.